Okay, so we're, we're learning Sefer Yeshayahu, and, you know, this is not like a presentation. We're just going to learn it like we did, you know, together. And uh, just to give background, obviously, the, the Navi is pretty clear uh, in identifying the time period during which Yeshayahu lived, which is also he shares with some other Nevi'im that overlapped with his time, like Hosea, for example. Um, there's overlap between other Nevi'im and uh, Yeshayahu. Uh, and um, it's helpful that the Navi tells us, which was a period of a uh, very mixed period, because actually Uziyahu was pretty good. Not perfect, but pretty good. Yotam was good. Achaz was very bad. And then Chizkiyahu was good. And part of what Chizkiyahu had to deal with was that he inherited a really uh, difficult situation. Uh, religiously and also politically that he had to uh, he had to contend with and that was during the time that the ten tribes had already been exiled and Yehuda was very isolated and was uh, facing the threat of the of Ashur facing the Assyrian threat uh, that miraculously basically uh, Chizkiah was saved from but continued to be a threat to his kingdom for a long time until eventually the Assyrians were defeated by the Babylonians and then it was the Babylonians ultimately that, uh, that destroyed the first Beit HaMikdash but the Assyrians didn't fail to do so for lack of trying. It was because they had other difficulties that, uh, that intervened. Um, okay, so Chazon Yishayahu. Do you want to read this or do you want me to read it? I mean, I don't know. The recording won't hear you as well. It's not like Israel. Okay, so Chazon Yishayahu ben Amot asher chaza al Yehuda v'Yerushalayim. Yishayahu exclusively addressed the kings of uh, of Yehuda. He didn't deal with Yisrael. You'll notice, like some of the Nevi'im, it'll say that they had a nevuah about Yisrael, meaning Malchut Yisrael. For example, a uh, famous Navi that dealt who dealt exclusively with Malchut Yisrael would be like uh, would be like uh, Eliyahu Navi or something like that. He didn't have anything to do with Malchut Yehuda, only with Malchut Yisrael. Uh, by this time, by the time of Chizkiah, there was no Malchut Yisrael anyway. But, um, you, you, but in the beginning, uh, there was still. So in the beginning of his career. <clears throat> now, it's a very loaded pasuk because really in order to understand the, uh, the totality of all of these, you know, the, the historical context, you have to study Sefer Malachim, and we could close the book. One of the biggest impediments to studying Yeshayahu is that people open up the book of Yeshayahu and say, well, this is occurring during the kings, these four kings. Well, I don't really remember what happened during those four kings. I better go learn Navi again. And then they forgot to learn Yeshayahu because they get engrossed in learning Sefer Malachim. Okay, but I, I, I don't think you need to remember every detail of, uh, of those stories in Sefer Malachim to understand the themes of Sefer Yeshayahu for the simple reason that whatever is directly relevant to the context of those books, Yeshayahu appears in the book of Malachim. He's also a character in the book of Malachim. He comes and he interacts with the king. So whatever is specifically embedded in the narrative of the book of Malachim, his interactions with Chizkiyahu, for example, are very famous. Those appear in the text of the book of Malachim and you don't need to look uh, you don't need to cross-reference in order to understand the, the majority of the Nevo'ot and Sefer Yeshayahu, as long as you have a general sense of what's going on. 
in, uh, in the period of the Melachim. And you know that there's a decline, obviously, in the spiritual life of uh, the Jewish people. And you recognize that Malchut Yehuda and Malchut Yisrael, Malchut Yisrael is the first to fall. And this has a lot of significance for Malchut Yehuda, or should have significance for Malchut Yehuda. And the question is, will the uh, citizens of Yehuda recognize the significance of what's happened to their brethren in Malchut Yisrael and respond to it? That's part of the issue. But you notice that it says a chazon, and uh, even though we're not going to go into this because this is really a topic of Moran Nebuchim, it's not really a topic of Sefer Yishayahu in particular, but the different levels of Nivuah that, uh, that are possible and what they signify. Um, chazon is a certain level of Nivuah. Even the Ibn Ezra mentions it here. He says that it means uh, Balayla, Chazion Layla. It's talking about uh, a vision of the night, which is a different kind of a level of prophecy than a vision or a communication during the day uh, in, in, wakeful, in a wakeful state. There's also a famous Midrash that uh, Yishayahu was the nephew of the king, that actually, um, that actually he was from the royal family. And the, uh, the Ibn Ezra here says that, uh, it's, uh, that that's probably, probably they, they had this idea because they were wondering why he wasn't harassed like Yirmiyahu was harassed. And so it would make sense that he must have had connections, you know, in the royal palace that gave him some immunity. Well, that's another thing yeah, I was going to say that, yeah. That's something that, some, that like the Dat Mikra would talk about. I think they probably do. I think that they do in their introduction. Yeah, Yermiyahu is like a rural, a rural guy. He's a, like a country bumpkin type of uh, guy. And Yeshayahu is clearly an urbanite. And you can tell from the level of the Hebrew that they use because Yermiyahu speaks a very simple Hebrew and he repeats himself a lot. Like if you read the book of Yermiyahu, it's very down-to-earth language for the most part. I'm not saying every pasuk is easy to understand, but he, his, the level of Hebrew in Sefer Yermiyahu is much more comprehensible to the average person than the level of Hebrew in Sefer Yishayahu. So we oftentimes would compare it to like Shakespeare versus like, uh, you know, uh, ordinary speech almost. Even the Cheskel is easier to understand. The hardest uh, Navi to understand the language is by far, in my opinion, I, th- I think, is, is Yishayahu because his language is poetic language through and through. Huh? Uh, I don't find his language hard. I find understanding what he's talking about hard. You know, that it's a different type of art. It's like, I can't understand what the context is or what he's referring to, but I can understand the words for the most part. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe when he's discussing the third bit of Mikdash, some things are not clear, or uh, you know, the context of some of the nevuot he's giving are not clear. But the language he uses is not so uh, sophisticated that it's um, that it seems incomprehensible to us. Yeshayahu really is like speaking the king's English, so to speak, or he speaks like a Shakespearean version of Hebrew. So it's a very sophisticated uh, level of language. And because of that, based upon that, uh, many of the modern commentaries will say he clearly had an education. He was clearly an urban, um, uh, sophisticate, and not, in, not a uh, rural farmer like Yirmiyahu. But that, that isn't just speculation. I mean, it says that... You're, that right, first of all, Chazal say that you, you make this point. It's not a point that is made just by modern scholars. It's a point that the Chazal make that, oh, Yishayahu was the nephew of the king. Right? They say that, yeah, that, his, uh, that Amot, 
And Amot, the, uh, the father of Yishayahu, they were, they were brothers. That's why he had names that were so similar. You know, and that's why he was an urbanite. It can make sense. Yirmiyahu, it says, it's a, it's a village. He was a village guy from Anatot, one of the, one of the villages of the Kohanim. And even in the movie, in the Jeremiah movie, it does a very good job of showing that. It shows that he's from this uh, village and, you know, he lives out in the boondocks and they come to the city. So um, that's accurate. So it makes sense that he would have a more... Uh, he, he speaks the vernacular Hebrew, right? Whereas Yishayahu does not. Now, in any case, the question is, what is the main theme of this first of one? Now, all the commentaries pretty much zero in on the fact that... Uh, that, uh, that this is not actually the first Nevo'ah of Yishayahu. The first Nevo'ah of Yishayahu is in, I think, the fifth parak. it is, right? Is it parak A? It's a few prakim from now. I think it's parak A, where he has the vision of, uh, that is like the, uh, the minor Merkava vision of, of, of Yishayahu, sort of, as opposed to the major one of Yechezkel, which is the very elaborate one. And uh, that Nevo'ah that he has is the first well, no, it's not hey. What is it, Vav, maybe? Must be Vav, maybe? Uh, yeah, it's Vav. Yeah, 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 it's Vav, it's Vav, it's Vav. Not hey. It's hard for me to remember Prakim because I, I don't really usually look at the Prakim when I'm, when I'm reading. I look at the spaces. Um, yeah, so in, in Perig Vav, that is assumed to be his first Nevu'abish, not Mota Melech Uziyahu. Not everybody agrees with that either, though, because some people say, no, it says, he was a Navi, so that must mean even during Uziyahu's time, he was a Navi as well, not just after he died. But in this Nivuan, in Perg Vav, the, Hashem says, who's going to go and, uh, and, and chastise the people? And he says, I will go. So they say, oh, well, this must be the Shlichut of Yishayahu from, from Perg Vav. Either way, everybody pretty much agrees that this Nivuah was not the first Nivuah. But it's the one that opens the book. And the question is, why is that? Whenever something... We can accept the idea of en mukdam umuchar batorah. We can accept that idea. That's an idea throughout all of Tanakh. And even though the commentaries will sometimes argue whether a particular instance is really mukdam umuchar, whether it's really out of order, right? For example, in the beginning of Yitro, where most of the Mepharshim say that the beginning of Yitro really happened after Matan Torah. Right? Most of the Mepharshim do. Even the Rambam's son said that his father held that view, that the, the, the arrival of Yitro and everything really happened after Matan Torah. And the Ramban wants to argue, no, definitely not, it happened before, right? But, but it doesn't matter. Still you have the question, okay, if you're going to say that it is out of order, so why then? Why? It's still, still you have to explain the order, right? Whether the order is chronological or not doesn't absolve you from explaining why the order is what it is. Maybe it's easier to say it's chronological order, but then you still have to explain why it's in the order that it is. And if it's not a chronological order, then for sure you have to explain it. So why this is the opening of Wav Yishayahu is something that I think we need to reflect on. But let's take a look at what he describes and see uh, if we can get a picture of what he's trying to draw a picture here. And I think that's the power of a chazon. Chazon means a vision, which means he's trying to give you a certain picture, right? La chazot is to look, right? It's, it has to do with something visual. So what is the picture that he's drawing here? Now, all of this language, we can pick out of three different, four different, five different interpretations of what half of it means, because there's so many times that there are different nuances, but we're just going to do the basics, okay? Listen, heavens, and 
give ear. You know, that's actually what hazinu means, because it comes from the word ozen, right? So if you were to translate it in really precise English, you'd probably say to give ear. Like we say, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him, you know, from Shakespeare that I once had to memorize when I was younger. Right? So, <laughs> Listen, heavens, and give ear from the word ozen, like the, the Ibn Ezra will, will explain it here. Right? That, Ki Hashem Diber, Hashem is speaking. Now that could either mean listen because Hashem is speaking, and when Hashem speaks, you have to listen. It, the key is really a causal key, right? That it's saying. Yeah, so for sure, for sure. And in fact, when do we read this? We always read this Haftarav Shabbat Chazon, right before Tisha B'Av, and everyone says, oh, because Moshe Rabbeinu said. And, and, and Yishayahu says the same thing, but he flips it around, right? Because Moshe Rabbeinu was on a higher level, so for him it was He was closer to the heavens. So he said, it's, it's a drash, but you know, you get the idea. And that, but the concept is that in both cases, calling upon the heavens and earth as witness can have two meanings. It can mean, um, it can mean something uh, metaphoric, Okay, meaning that you're saying take something which is permanent and unchanging and testifies to the uh, God's creation and God's handiwork, and you're metaphorically saying this permanent and timeless, so to speak, you know, testimony to God's creation is 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 holding to account the creations of God that are not following His will. The heavens and earth are. uh, created by God and they're following God's will and you're not and so they're in a certain sense like testifying against you that's a metaphoric way but there's also a way that's more literal which is what does the Torah tell you is going to happen if you don't follow the, if you don't follow it what's, what's going to happen did you ever notice that Shemaim Ba'aretz appears three times in the second paragraph of Kriyat Shema right that's talking about the heavens and the earth, right? That's talking about this, the rain, right? Yoreum al is the early and late rain, right? And it's talking about the esem besadechav levhem techa. But what happens if you don't follow the mitzvot? Right? There's not going to be any rain, and the land is not going to give it tivula. It's not going to give the, uh, the the grain. And you're going to be kicked out. But then what does it say at the end? Right? So actually, the living in harmony with Shamaim Ba'aretz is part of the message of the Kriyat Shema. The same creator that designed the heavens and earth expects you to live in harmony with the heavens and earth. And just like the heavens and earth operate according to God's will, you're expected to operate in accordance with God's will. And when you do, the whole heavens and earth cooperate with you. They cooperate with you. The rain comes and the, uh, and the, the, the yield of crops is abundant. But if you don't, so then you're living out of harmony with the creation. You're living out of harmony with God's design. And what happens? The, design, the rest of the design rebels against you. Just like a foreign invader in your body is repelled by the immune system. You know, it kicks you out, throws you out. And so... I think both of these interpretations are, have a truth to them. In other words, there's a symbolic significance of saying calling upon heavens and earth to testify against you, calling upon the most permanent 
representatives of God's handiwork to uh, testify against you metaphorically. But there's also a literal testimony. And I think that that's a lot of what he's saying here. But, and, and, the, uh, and, and what I, what I think, at least, you know, in, in, in terms of understanding Yeshayahu, what he's really describing in this opening prophecy is the klalot of the Torah having been fulfilled. Right? Because what are the, the klalot always center around, the curses of the Torah center around withholding of the blessings of heaven and earth, sickness befalling the people, and, you know, war, and every, every tragedy and every form of suffering that could be visited upon them is visited upon them. That's what the klalot are, right? When you read in the end of Sefer Vayikra, you read the klalot, and in the end of Sefer Dvarim, you're in Kitavo, you read the Klalot, and the Klalot are describing how not only heavens and earth rebel against you, but there's sickness and there's uh, and the, the, all kinds of diseases and there's all kinds of conflict and war. Your enemies come and eat your stuff, right? Everything that you toiled for is taken by your enemies. You never get to enjoy it. That's exactly what Yeshayahu describes here. If you really, if you look, okay, it says, I raised up and I, I, I grew and I raised up these children and they rebelled against me. Right? In other words, Hashem invested in creating this nation, bringing them up from nothing to become what they are today. This, uh, you know, the, the achievement of the Jewish people, both materially, culturally, spiritually, intellectually, all of these achievements that God brought about. And they rebelled against me. And I, I think actually even the... Um, even the, yeah, uh, the Ibn Ezra, he mentions it too, I remembered. He says, when he talks about Hazinu HaShamayim, he says, Right? He says that he called the witnesses that Moshe called, Ki avod tovedun. Because Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm calling upon the heavens and earth to tell you. So it said, and he says, Ki avod tovedun maher, ba'ha'et. And this was the time that it was happening. That's what the Ibn Ezra says. In words, yeah, in other words, he's saying that really what, we're to- what Yeshayahu is describing is the fulfillment of the Klalot. But why is that significant in Yeshayahu's time? Why is it significant in Yeshayahu's time is really what's bothering Yeshayahu. And I think that's why Yeshayahu's first nivwa is this one. Because there's only one thing worse than the Klalot. There's only one thing worse than having the Klalot, being on the side of the Klalot instead of the Bachot. You know what it is? When, what? Not just that, when the klalot don't work. Right? In other words, when the, when, when the situation has become so bad that the klalot themselves are ineffective, there's no way to reach the people anymore. Because their defenses are so deeply embedded in them that they can't even respond to the klalot. And if you think that that's, if you read it, you see that's really what he's saying. You know? You have wounds from your feet to your head to your feet. You have, uh, you have wounds and you have illness. So you don't do anything about it. Don't, you know, your, your, your sadeh, that you have uh, in your field, that your enemies are eating your stuff and, and, and you have nothing left. He's describing how the klalot are being fulfilled, but the people still are not getting the message. Yeah, they are. It's, it's, like, it's impossible. There's nothing you can do worse to them than wake them up so those people have gone. 
Right. I mean, you're really only punishing the leaders to try to get them. Like you try to, the sanctions are really directed against the leaders, but they don't care. But, <clears throat> well, the people are brainwashed. Who knows what they, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I don't know how much we know. It's, it's such a closed society. Like to know what the people are actually thinking. For sure, a lot of expats from North Korea say they were so totally brainwashed. They thought that like Kim, Kim Jong-un could read their thoughts. Like they were really brainwashed. The interesting thing is that for all its anti-science, anti-religion rhetoric and communism and totalitarian government, they feed into a bizarre mystical mentality, even though they're against religion. But like the belief that Kim Jong-un is the provider for all of our needs. He's the one who... Pro- and, he, and he can read our thoughts and knows if we're betraying him in our heart. It's like weird. They have statues of, the, of his father that they bow to. It's, it's weird. It's like they create a weird religion in place of the religion that, that they're rejecting. Strange stuff. Yeah, but it's, it's just interesting that for all that opposition to religious thinking, you would think they would be this enlightened atheist scientific culture, but they're not. They they're still have that mystical, um, it's just that it's perverted into a type of idolatry. It's like the exact same thing as the idolatry of the old days. Pretty much the same thing. Like, but more unabashed first version, like just like they worshipped Paro. It's like, this, it's the same thing. Anyway, Banim Gidalti Romanti. So I lifted up, I grew and lifted up these children, they rebelled against him. So the shore is the ox. He knows his purchaser. And the donkey knows the trough of its master. Okay? In other words, the, per- the animal naturally, what he's saying is that there's a natural sense of where your good comes from. There's a natural sense of it. Right? Yisrael lo yada. Ami lo But Yisrael doesn't know. And my, my nation doesn't reflect. Right? So, the Ibn Ezra says, Vihinea behemot tovot bedat yoter mimenu. Right. Meaning an animal instinctively, like there's a saying, there's a saying, a dog will not bite the hand that feeds it. This is the principal difference between a man and a dog. Right? So, meaning a person consciously has to recognize the natural recognition that comes. A baby, let's say, has a natural recognition of its parents, that the parents provide for it. And so there's a natural connection and bond in a normal relationship, I'm saying, where it's a healthy relationship between parents and children, especially a mother and child, of a caregiver and a nurturer. And so the, the baby naturally, but that same baby that so naturally loves their mom, when they become a teenager, oy vavoy lachem. All of a sudden, all bets are off. They became a teenager, right? They become independent. They start saying, what do you mean? You, you can't tell me what to do. What do you mean? You're going to tell me? Totally changes. What happened to that sweet child that so naturally recognized what the source of their goodness was and now they're becoming like this, right? So they take it for granted and they become uh, emboldened to rebel against the very providers that they once were so devoted to. So the idea is that there's a natural sense of the causality of where our goodness, where our blessing comes from. If a person looks at the history of the Jewish people, you see where does the the sophistication that we have come from? Where does our freedom come from? Where does our knowledge come from? Where does the fact that we have material blessings and prosperity come from? All of these things, where does it come from? There's an intuitive sense. 
it requires a conscious effort to avoid reflecting on that and to avoid acknowledging it and to construct a bubble that disallows us to really be aware of that. And that's something that's uniquely human. Like a person who, ne- like, and the truth is that there's, a, there's, a, there's this Catholic philosopher, his name is uh, Jacques Maritain. He's a, he's a Catholic philosopher living in the 20th um, century. And he wrote, he, talked about, he talks about approaches to God. He talks about like belief in, it's a very small book he has. He talks about like belief in God and the, the basis for belief in God and what kind of arguments should convince a person that God exists. But he says in the beginning of the book, I remember I read it like a really, really long time ago, so I'm probably misquoting it, but he says something to the effect of a person should start with the intuitive sense of God. Meaning that if you're really honest and you look out at the universe without any preconceived notion and without any assumptions and without any baggage and without any thousands of years of tyranny of religious organizations that have you know, ruined it for everybody, right? And you just look at the world, there's an intuitive sense you're standing before something greater than yourself, right? Start with that intuitive sense and in recognizing God. Like that should be the foundation. There's no denying that a person, if you took away everything that they've, you know, that they've artificially grafted onto their understanding of the world, that there's an intuitive sense that this, this is a create. Like Einstein would say that when you look at the universe, it's like walking into a library filled with books in a language we can't read, you know? But somebody wrote them. We just don't, we don't, we can't always read them because we don't have the tools. But that's how it, that's, that's the natural sense. That's why Einstein hated atheists because he thought that they were arrogant and they were in denial. Uh, you know, that a person's natural conclusion would be, of course, I, I, I can't say anything about who or what the creator is, but obviously some mind made this. I mean, it's not, it's not accidental. You know, that's the intuitive sense of uh, the Borei Olam that a person would have. And that's really what, what Ishaya was saying. He's saying an animal goes by instinct. It goes by the natural sense that, oh, this, uh, this, this owner is taking care of me and this owner is responsible for my growth and for my success and for my safety and for whatever else and cares for me and all that. But, it, but the Jewish people, even though they should be aware of the same, they deny it. But their denial is conscious because they're human beings. So therefore they can consciously deny a reality. Animals can't consciously deny reality. They, they actually are better off than we are. Intuitively, they have to recognize reality. You feed an animal, it will keep coming back. It recognizes your source of good. Doesn't, it's not going to reject you. you know, it's, it, it doesn't have the ability to do that. So, the, uh, so that's what he's saying. <laughs> so goy chote, this, this errant nation, I would say, is chote. Chote means usually missing the mark, making a mistake. It's not necessarily a uh, intentional, right? Chote means someone who is errant, I would call it. Someone who's making an error. Am kevet avon, heavy with avon is willful sin. What's the difference between chet and, and, and avon? Just for one second. Even though the Ibn Ezra will probably say that this is just tam uh, kaful, he always says, you know, it's just using the same language, but I'm not so sure about this because chet for sure, what's the difference between chet? Why is chet accidental? Where did the rabbis get the idea that to interpret the word chet is accidental and avon is on purpose? Because there's two kinds of sins a person can do. Really, there's more than two, but... There's two basic kinds, which is one is where a person has the right objective, but they miscalculate. You know? What? 
Yeah, they wanted to connect to God, but they made a mistake in doing it. It could be very serious, but the point is they missed the mark. Their objective was to connect with God or to, 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 to maintain their relationship with God, and they made an error in doing that, an error. That's why we say, Because God created us as human beings, we make mistakes. So uh, as a result of our human nature, we make mistakes. But we say, Because Pesha or Avon is rebellion against God. In other words, one thing is a person wants to serve God, but they make mistakes in thinking that the things that they're doing are really consistent with that when they might not be. You know, but that's, that's different than Pesha or Avon, where the person is deliberately saying, I'm not going to adopt the value that God says is right. I have a different set of values. I don't think that this is the right thing. I, I have a different philosophy of life. It's the, uh, like somebody once said, what's the difference between somebody who is insane and somebody who is wicked? A person who is wicked makes their insanity into a philosophy. Right? If you're just insane, okay, we feel bad for you. Right? But if you make it into a, this is a belief system about the world, so now you're, now you're wicked. Now, banim mashchitim, destructive children, either destroying themselves or it means corrupting their natural path. That's something also that you find in Noach. They ruined their path, meaning there's a certain natural path of growth a person would take if they weren't encumbered by any preconceived notions, if they weren't encumbered by any influences, alien influences that interrupt their natural growth, the influence of culture, the influence of peers, the influence of bad upbringing, the influence of whatever. You know, all of those things that can affect the person and destroy their path. So, Bani Mashchiti, Hashem, they left Hashem. They angered the God of Israel. Nazor wachor, nazor wachor, either means they separated from God going backwards. Okay? Or they became alien to God from the word zar. But either way, it means to say that they stepped away from God. Right? They abandoned God. They angered God. They stepped away from God. So, instead of recognizing God as the cause of their success and the continued source of their future prosperity and their fulfillment... They abandoned God, seeking some other source of security or success or fulfillment, some other purpose in life other than serving God. Like Azivot Hashem, Ibn Ezra says, Hatam Avodat Hashem, meaning they stopped serving God. Do you think a general statement or do you see a specific act of something that happened in the time that I came? I think he's talking about a general trend away from Avodat Hashem it sounds like I don't know that he's identifying any specific sins he doesn't say any specific sins yet I mean he will later right now he's talking about the general picture of a nation that really its history is a miraculous history and has seen the evidence of God's hand in uh, generation after generation and obviously from the beginning of its uh, you know establishment as a nation until now which I think is a lot of what the idea of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is the idea of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is that uh, it, just like the idea of Yitzchak's birth, to talk about something that's in the recent parasha, is that his whole existence is a miracle. Therefore, you recognize that his purpose is to serve God. That we were given this child for a divine purpose. How, what's the proof? Because he came as a miracle. So obviously, there's a specific divine purpose involved in this child's birth and in how we're supposed to raise this child and what this child is destined to do. What does the Rambam say about Avraham Avinu? Only after he was thrown into the into the Kivshana Eshu, after it was thrown into the uh, fi- fiery furnace, 
and he came out alive, did he say, now I'm going to go and spread the word of Hashem throughout the world? Meaning he recognized that, oh, well, if I survived by a miracle, that means that I must have a higher purpose to fulfill. And then in Yitziat Mitzrayim, the same thing, the Jewish people emerged as a miracle from Mitzrayim. So the fact that they emerged as a result of divine intervention and a, a miraculous process of redemption, obviously they had to participate in it because we have free will and you can't, you cannot force a person to be redeemed. They have to, there has to be a, a, a transformation of the self, which happens as a result of, which is a volitional process that the person undertakes. But you, you have to be a participant in that. But there was, there was clearly divine intervention and miracles in the creation of the Jewish people, which means that its whole existence as a nation is owed to God in a way Really, everyone's existence is owed to God, and every nation's existence is owed to God. But when, when a miracle is responsible for your existence, it's more manifest. It wasn't a result of natural processes or decisions of human beings. So that should give their, ident- their national identity a different quality, and they recognize that their existence as a nation among the nations was unique and had a unique purpose. But they disconnected from that purpose and abandoned it and sought another purpose. Um, and... And then he describes, and, and this is where I think he's getting at here. He's trying to say, what was the mechanism to correct the Jewish people when they went off the derech? It was the klalot. In other words, they're, just like you have that now they have in the car. I don't know if you guys have this in your cars. I think it's in every new car now. When you go off the lane a little bit, it makes a beeping sound. You have that in your cars now? I know my wife has it in hers. That if you, if you go a little bit out of the lane, it makes a beep. You know? You know and so... That kind of thing, that corrective alarm was supposed to be the klalot. They start gradually, you get a little bit of klalot and a little bit more until it becomes very intense. And the idea was that, and the ultimate example of the intensity is galut, obviously, which is the worst of all, which is actual exile. But everything leading up to that was there's still a framework that can be saved, can be salvaged. The klalot are meant to disrupt the complacency of the people that are distant from God so they will reawaken and they'll come back. But what he describes here is amazing. I think the way he describes it is so, is so good. He says, what was the purpose? Right? You think to yourself uh, that, uh, you know, what was the purpose of you being struck so much? You just continue to deviate away from God. It doesn't work. The more he punishes, the more deviant you become. The more you, the more you stray. You go away. And he says, uh, like the, the Ibn Ezra here says, The more that uh, God uh, punishes you, the more you rebel. Or the, the, also the Radak says, Don't wonder why you're being punished. Because you continue to, uh, con- to consider all of these things as an accident. Right? What's the point of God punishing you if anyway you're going to deviate? You're not going to learn from it. Right? The only purpose of a... Uh, it's like the, it's like, it reminds me of what the Sephorno says about Tzarat. Where he says, how come we don't have Tzarat today? We have plenty of Lashon Hara. If it's for Lashon Hara, why don't we have it? We, we could use it. There's even more Lashon Hara probably than ever. So why don't we have it? He says, because being corrected for Lashon Hara presupposes that you're on such a high level that that's your main concern. That people might be saying Lashon Hara. But in a society where the fundamentals of Judaism have wasted away and we're so distant from God, we don't even have a Beit HaMikdash, worrying about the detail of whether someone's saying Lashon Hara is a small detail in terms of the overall 
condition of the Jewish people spiritually. So we are not worthy of that kind of punishment. That, that punishment is actually there when it can actually work, when it can have an effect. But if it can't even have an effect, what's the point? Now, he says, uh, and he says, Kol rosh all, every head is sick, and every heart is sick. Meaning everyone is, is experiencing sickness, whether physically or, or, or emotionally. There's nothing perfect from head to toe. In Hebrew, you say, You start from the feet, you go to the head. I'm not sure why. In English, we always say from head to toe. Right? In Hebrew, you say, But it's the same idea. It probably comes from here, the saying in Hebrew. But it's, you know, from foot to head, you're, you have nothing mitom, you have nothing complete. You're, you're, you have every kind, of, every kind of injury. Petza is like a bruise. Chabura is, an, is another type of an injury. Makatri has a fresh wound that hasn't been dressed. They haven't been dried or, or bandaged. And they weren't treated with oil, which these are all the things that you would do with the... Meaning, you're getting beaten mercilessly, okay? It's like, uh, you're like Rocky Balboa going up against the Russian guy in Rocky IV, you know? You're getting beaten to a pulp. And, uh, and yet you're not learning anything from it. You keep going. You keep going for more. You want, you, 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 you're a glutton for punishment, no matter what. And you haven't even healed from the previous, uh, uh, from the past uh, uh, injuries. And then, your land is desolate. Your cities are burnt. Because remember, at this time, only Yerushalayim survived at this time. Everything else was already taken by Assyria by the time that this, this Nebuah was said. Your land, right in front of you, strangers are eating the fruits of your land. I mean, they're taking your crops. And it is completely, uh, uh, it's, it's completely desolate, like something that was turned over to strangers. Meaning to say that, that, that you have no, uh, your, your land has been taken over by others. It's, uh, the, the crops are being eaten by others. He's describing, as far as I can tell, these are literally all the klalot that are described in the Torah. Right, that you're going to have your enemies are going to come and, and consume the land. You're going to have disease. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have. Uh, you're going to. Ha- you're not going to have peace. Okay, all of these things are the fulfillment of the klalot of the Torah. But you're not learning anything. And Zion, meaning Jerusalem, is like a sukkah in a vineyard. Kimluna b'miksha, like a hut b'miksha in a field of cucumbers. Ke'ilon they say, is like a city that's been destroyed. Destroyed, actually, they say, according to... That's what Ibn Ezra says. And the, the Radak says, Ke'ilon anasheha. That it's, it's, it has no... It's, it's an abandoned wasteland. Meaning why? Because these are... The Sukkah Bekarem, or the Melunah Miksha, these are places that are only seasonal. Right, the guy goes and he guards the vineyard during the season and he guards the cucumbers during the season, but as soon as the season is over and everything is taken, he leaves. So meaning it's an abandoned, your cities are abandoned, just like the sukkah out in the vineyard that nobody's in anymore. You walk by, you see the empty hut because it's not the season anymore. Okay? This, so he's describing like using imagery from their agricultural society of what you would see um, as in a, the ultimate in a, you know like sometimes you'll see these abandoned cities or abandoned villages and you just see you know huts there that once were part of some vibrant and uh, fruitful 
agricultural uh, uh, project and now are just uh, left, left and empty. According to Muslim Farshim, this is the Jewish people talking. If it were not for Hashem, who left us a little remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Amorah. Okay, meaning we would have been wiped out totally. What is this saying? This is a very funny thing. The, all the Mepharshim say that this is actually said by the people and it's actually not true. They, they say that this is like the false claim of the people. Because what does Yeshayahu say? Listen to the words of Hashem, princes of Sidom. Meaning he's addressing, he's saying, you are Sidom. Listen to the, give ear to the Torah of our gods, people of Amorah. Meaning they were saying we would have been like Sidom. It's a good thing we weren't like Sidom. He's like, what do you mean? You are like that. What do you mean you're not? What is he saying? He's saying that what does a person do to rationalize? They focus on the good. Right? Right, well, we're not as bad. Look, at least we have something. I mean, why are you complaining? You know, why are you always so negative? But you're saying we're not grateful? Why are you so negative about everything? Okay, so all the cities are destroyed. Okay, so all of our crops are taken by enemies. Okay, so we're all sick and dying, but at least we're still here. You know, people will focus on the rosy side as we're existing in a, in a world without a Beit HaMikdash. We're existing in a world in Galut. We're existing in a world with all kinds of injustice and persecution, horrible things going on all over the world. And everyone will say, yeah, but look, we have a nice life here in Great Neck. I mean, why are you complaining? Yeah, that, that, he's describing that. He's saying, but, but at least God gave us something. He left us with something. Why are you focusing on the negative? So then the negative will never impact you. Because you're just sheltering yourself with what you have left. So a person will go to Israel, like we talked about. We are just talking about that last night. He goes, he sees, the Harabayit belongs to Arabs. And he'll go and kiss the Kotel. Like you're saying, wow, the Kotel, that's the Kotel. So good. The Kotel is the ruin of something we don't have. It's a tragedy, the Kotel. Like when you see the Kotel, you're supposed to tear your shirt. You're not supposed to be happy. It's a tragedy that you have the kotel. You're looking right there at where the Beit HaMikdash would be and you're not even allowed up there or you have to, you know, or it's complicated. Let's leave it at that. It's complicated to go there. You know? how, how could that be happy? Say, so, well, at least, Baruch Hashem, we have the old city. But God is giving you a message. He's saying you can't have this. What does that tell you? you sometimes you do need to focus on what you can't have because that's the whole point. The whole point is you can't have that. If you think... Every place that the Tanakh says that we bought with our own money is not, does not belong to us. Harabait, Hebron, right? And, and Shechem. These are all Arab cities. They're all controlled by Arabs. Every place that it says we paid full money, Abraham Avinu and this week's Barasha, full money, best, you know, the top dollar he paid for it, we're not allowed to go there. Marata uh, Machpela, not allowed to go. David Melech paid for Aravnaiv Vusi, paid full cash money for the Harabait. We're not allowed to go there. It says how much money Yaakov Avinu paid for Shechem. We're also not allowed to go there. So what's going on? If that's not a message, but a person will say, "Yeah, but look, we have uh, we have Kesaria and Elat." You know, I don't know. I'm just I'm not trying to put those places down. They're beautiful. I'm just saying. They'll focus on what we do have, but then say, but isn't there a message reverberating here? You don't have the essential thing. And that's what Ishaya was saying. He's saying the klalot work when a person recognizes that the absence of these good things and the suffering 
is supposed to indicate that there's something wrong and therefore do teshuvah, recognize the underlying problem. But if you, in, if you isolate yourself from that and you inoculate yourself against that, then you won't learn. It's like, imagine if one of your arms didn't work. Imagine if you couldn't lift your left arm. Would you say, it's okay, I have a right arm? Right? You wouldn't say that. You would go to the doctor. Right? What if you had pains in a certain part of your body or a certain part of your body doesn't work? You, would go, you wouldn't say, well, at least I have other organs of my body that do work. No, you would go to the doctor. So he's saying, why are you rationalizing and saying, well, at least we have this. Yeah, at least you have that. And therefore you can heal the rest if you get the message. But if you don't get the message, then all of the effort that God is putting in, so to speak, to trying to correct you, al-metuku, what's the point of trying to correct you if you can't hear the correction? Our, we are very blessed that our bodies, for example, feel pain. You know, there are some people that have a condition that they don't feel pain. It's the worst thing. They could be putting their hand on a hot stove, their hand is burning off and they won't feel it. There's a, there's a condition like that. And you would say, wow, they're so lucky they don't feel pain. But no, it's the worst thing because they can actually be really in danger and not recognize it and have no, rec- no awareness that, they are, uh, uh, that they're in pain. Are they coming in? Okay, we'll, we'll wrap up. Then. But the, um, but the, the, and that's, that's a bad condition to be in when you don't recognize pain. Because if you don't recognize pain and you can't sense it, then you can't correct yourself when you need to. And that's exactly what Yishai was saying. And then he takes it to another level when he talks about the Avodah of the Beit HaMikdash. And he says, Why do you bring all these korbanot and why do you come on the holidays and why do you pray? Because when you have your Avodah Tashem is actually counterproductive because, you're, because since you are a corrupt people, your avodat Hashem is an illusion that gives you a feeling that you're with God and, gives you, and helps you satisfy your religious guilt, but actually doesn't bring you closer from, uh, to God. It actually prevents you from recognizing how distant from God you are. So it becomes actually the ultimate, the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be. Instead of actually being a road to God, it becomes a roadblock. It prevents you from realizing how far you are from God. And that's what Yishai was going to talk about. If you don't understand, the, if you don't feel the pain of the klalot, and you go about your ordinary religious life, then actually you're locked in to unawareness of the depths of the spiritual sickness that is afflicting you and that's that's why i think this is the opening nivoa vishayao but i will continue next time we'll continue